Tina Desiree Berg, and welcome to the 34. Council, we built enough pressure to get enough of them to vote in favor for Amazon tax. The story doesn't end there. Three weeks later, massive pressure from the Chamber of Commerce, Bezos and all his buddies put pressure on those same Democrats and they caved. They reneged on the on the deal three weeks later and the tax was killed. That's an important lesson for us today. We need a clean break from the Democratic Party. It is the graveyard of social movement. But we weren't done in Seattle. Our organization wasn't done in the grassroots movement we built. The working class in Seattle wasn't done. We picked it up with Shama Swan's re-election campaign. Three different super PACs built up more than $4.5 million to defeat us. The working class of Seattle had different ideas. Shama Swan was re-elected yet again, and we rebuilt that campaign to tax Bezos, and we won again just a couple months ago. Except that the joke was on them this time because the first tax we won a couple years earlier was much less than what we won this time. Yeah! We kept building, we kept fighting, and the numbers got bigger, and the, the tax that we won was much bigger. And now we're set to, to build to bring families in Seattle out of poverty because of what we won, because of what we took back of, 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 yeah. of the, the profits that we created for this monster company. It's all done by workers, and we took it back, and we're going to do that here in Los Angeles. Yeah. I know LA is a massive area, but we've got a campaign, a grassroots campaign we've just begun building in Burbank. There's a massive Amazon distribution center that's getting built by the Burbank airport. We're building a grassroots campaign to tax Amazon. If they're coming in our neighborhood, we're going to take what's coming to us, right? We're going to take a slice. So, there is a, uh, a candidate running for city council in Burbank. His name is Constantine Anthony. Our organization, as well as some other strong organizations, have endorsed his campaign because he is in favor of taxing Amazon if he gets elected. So I encourage you, if you want to get involved locally and build the movement to tax Amazon, talk to one of us from Socialist Alternative. Raise your hand. We're out there today. Find us, we got clipboards, you can sign up, we will contact you. We are building a grassroots, multi-racial, working class campaign, because that's what it takes to win. And lastly, I just want to thank Chris and all the workers at Amazon that stood up, that had the courage to stand up and walk out. That's what we need in organized labor. Where was organized labor? Why weren't they leading those workouts? Why aren't they leading those workouts today? We need a revolution within organized labor. We need a democratic renewal within organized labor. Yeah. And it's going to be from people like Chris Smalls in the workplaces to throw out the bum bureaucrats and to really make the labor movement what it should be, fighting for workers, taking capital on, head on, straight on. Thanks, everybody. Yeah. Today we're speaking with Constantine Anthony, who is running for the Burbank City Council. Welcome, Constantine. Thank you for having me. This is fantastic. Uh, I'm uh, excited to be here. Excellent. So I lived in Burbank for a little while, but I want to tell the audience exactly where Burbank is if they're not familiar. Burbank is 
its own incorporated city, but it's also within the county of Los Angeles. It's mainly known as, um, I would say, the media capital of the world because you have almost every studio has a presence there from Disney to Warner Brothers. So you have a large population that works for Hollywood studios and a lot of independent film there as well. And it has, many people know, its own, its own uh, airport, the Bob Hope Airport's right there. So it's, it's sort of like this little incorporated mini city within the larger city of Los Angeles. It's surrounded by LA on, on really all four sides. So um, you, you are a founding member of the Mobile Workers Alliance, and I wanted to talk about that for a moment because this is an area that I don't think is getting enough attention. So basically, mm -hmm. you're trying to, my understanding is you're trying to unionize Uber and Lyft drivers, but not only the Uber and Lyft drivers, also the drivers that work for um, apps like Postmates, Instacart, things of this nature. And right now, those folks, I, in my opinion, don't get paid enough. Uh, they don't have unemployment benefits. They don't have uh, any sort of workers' comp protections, anything of that nature. So what exactly uh, are is your platform for trying to achieve unionization? And then what exactly does that entail? Are you looking for the state to recognize them as employees, or are they still going to be gig workers with just more protections? Tell us a little bit about the organization and where you're going with that. Yeah, so a few years ago, um, I uh, got involved with a couple other drivers here in LA County, and we were noticing that our pay, uh, the, the pay that we were getting from Uber and our rate was going down, steadily going down, which is very different than most other wages, because over time, you normally get cost of living increases, uh, but they were actually paying us less <laughs> uh, the longer we were driving. So it was... Um, very frustrating. And so we started to organize uh, drivers and, and, you know, basically understand what was happening, learn about uh, the Uber business model, um, mm -hmm. because all we knew was how the app worked and how to drive, right? That, that's, that was our um, expertise. Uh, I have over 15,000 rides with Uber. Wow. And so I'm a veteran driver. Um, most people are shocked by that number. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot. It is a lot. I've been all over LA County. I've even had trips to San Diego and Las Vegas. So I've, I've been around the block. Wow. Somebody took an Uber to Las Vegas. That's crazy. Yeah. It was a guy, uh, they were on their honeymoon and it was uh, Christmas Eve and he just wanted to go to He's like, yeah, I want to drink champagne with my new Lubin. I get it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Expensive, but I get it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, it was very interesting. Um, so, you know, I really like the job. I just didn't um, appreciate the pay scale. Yeah. So we organized. And it's funny, uh, when we started that, a lot of other groups across the country, even in Northern California, had their own organizing um, sort of established uh, groups. And we finally uh, came together and it culminated in a bill last year, a state bill, uh, AB5. And... Um, Assembly Bill 5, basically what it did, it, it codified a, um, a California Supreme Court uh, uh, judgment called Dynamex. It was a Supreme Court ruling in California that said um, there are certain criteria that you have to pass in order to be qualified as an independent contractor. Mm -hmm. For so long, for so many years, um, basically your employer could call you an independent contractor and you, the worker, had to prove otherwise. Right. The Dynamex ruling said, no, no, no. We, the California Supreme Court, believe it should be of the other way around. Everyone is inherently an employee, 
and you, the employer, have to prove that they are an independent contractor and you don't have to pay for their workers' comp. You don't have to pay for their health insurance. That's right. So just to elaborate on that, basically the two criteria are, are if you tell somebody where to be at work and what time to be there, they are considered an employee for all of these reasons. So I think well, there's, there's three criteria. It's called the ABC test. And you can, uh-huh. you can look this up. Anyway, I can look this up. The ABC test. And it's, it's basically, yeah, it's can your employer tell you what to do? Is that the only person you work for? Um, oh, is do, that a criteria? I didn't know that. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's, it, there's, a, there's a lot of qualifiers to this. Okay. And, so this is broader than just the workers' comp rules. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Much more than that. It's, it's the fundamental basic protections as an employee, mm-hmm. um, you know, against uh, discrimination and harassment. Right, right. And, Unlawful termination. Which makes sense because right now, if you just use the workers' comp criteria, that applies to people that aren't really employees either. You can have a 1099 and still have to be covered on workers' comp. I know that's been a big argument for the film Mm -hmm. sets. Yeah, but there's a whole host of things that you get as an employee that you as a contractor. I mean, that's, yeah. Um, And so we, we fought to get that law passed. Um, Lorena Gonzalez out of San Diego really spearheaded that. Um, I applaud her for that work. And me and a bunch of other drivers, we all went up to Sacramento on the day that they were uh, voting for it. And we lobbied in person. We talked to a bunch of assembly members. And then later we talked to state senators. And we said, hey, man, we're the drivers. We're the ones who are dealing with this. This is what it looks like when you're in our car. Because it's easy to just you know, write it down on paper or think about it as an app. But really, these are jobs and people are doing hard jobs. Uh, I don't know if you've ever driven on the L.A. streets, but it's dangerous. <laughs> I have not only driven on L.A. streets, I've been in multiple accidents on L.A. streets. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, thankfully, I haven't been in an accident since 2004. It's funny, I moved here in 2004. And within my first six months, I got into an accident. And everyone says, oh, yeah. That's what happens. Right you, start driving, <laughs> you start driving, you start driving back home, you get into the accident and then you realize, oh, LA is different. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so yeah, I've been a very safe driver, no accidents in 16 years, knock on wood. And um, that kind of experience and the quality of my driving is worth a lot of money. That is hard labor and we deserve to be paid for that. So actually um, uh, the Mobile Workers Alliance is demanding that Uber pay us $15 an hour plus $15 uh, an hour for expenses. So wages plus expenses would be $30 an hour, which is about $2 more an hour than what I was making when I first started. Okay. So when I signed up in, in 2015, I was making $28 an hour, cost of living and increases and in inflation, I'd be making about $30 an hour if yeah. they had kept up. So it's not really an unreasonable. Um, no, I don't think it's unreasonable. Plus, you're paying for the care of your car. I mean, that right. adding the miles and the wear and tear that costs money too, and that should yeah. probably be figured into the mix. Let me ask you a question, though. There was there was pushback against this bill because writers, and I know I saw a lot of journalists saying this. I'm not saying I agree with them, but they were they were saying that they were going to lose uh, jobs because of it because they truly are gig employees and that if they didn't fit the certain criteria that they weren't going to get hired going forward. I think there was a lot of uh, fear surrounding that. What is your take on that? Well, I, to her credit, Lorena Gonzalez has worked with a lot of different um, 
industry professionals and has carved out exemptions. Okay. So uh, the biggest exemptions that came first was, of course, doctors. So if you're a doctor, you work for a hospital, right? You're assigned to that hospital, and that's the person who pays you. But because of licensing and medical malpractice and the way the medical state board works, a doctor can't be directly employed by a hospital. So there's like this huge conflict of interest there. And so they wrote in an exemption for doctors and you wouldn't even think about it. Like if you were a regular person, you would just think the doctor works for the hospital. So there are very specific technical issues that need to be hammered out. Right. And, uh, you know, the, the state legislators going through them one by one. Hairdressers was another big one. Um, if, you, uh, if you've ever worked as a hairdresser, you know, you don't actually work for the salon. You rent the chair yeah. that yeah. you work out of. That's right. And so it's kind of a very unique situation. Um, I, I liken that job uh, much more to like the old cab drivers who would rent cars right, right, right. from yeah. their company. Um, uh, Uber, you know, ended that industry completely. So, yeah. <laughs> this is true. Uh, but very disruptive. Yeah, yeah very disruptive. Um, finding those exemptions and writing those in is, um, you know, it's a Herculean task. But I know the state legislature is up for it. But if you look at the number of professionals who want uh, independent contractor status and thrive under independent contractor status. It's a very small number compared to the number of people working who are forced into independent contractor status yeah. without yeah. their choosing. And that's rampant throughout the country. And so I, uh, I think it's great that California is really working to cut that number down, to really put the, um, put the onus on the employer to say, look, if you really want to pay them as independent contractor, just do the paperwork, prove it, and you've gotten your status. And yeah. For me, that's a much better way of going about it than saying, okay, employers can do whatever they want. Oh, I know. don't disagree. I actually agree with you. And honestly, a lot of those folks that were making those claims, I'd be like, man, some of the some of the folks you're writing for don't even pay well. Why are you making this argument? I mean, getting paid $50, $75 an article is, is ridiculous. And that's what yeah. some of these entities were doing and probably still doing. So I think people they need to not be so afraid of maybe fighting for more workers' rights, higher pay, better benefits. I mean, we deserve these things, right? Yeah. I mean, this is the classic argument that uh, a union organizer has to make. And it's so difficult in today's marketplace. Um, so like, you know, I, I always use uh, the example of my favorite movie, Newsies. When those young boys got together and unionized, they were all right there and they could all talk to each other and see what was happening. But when you're an independent writer, you're not in a room with a bunch of other writers. And when you're a driver, you're not in the room with a bunch of other drivers. So how do these um, autonomous uh, individuals collectively organize and bargain? And that's a that's a huge hurdle that we need to, to jump. I agree. And, and I'm glad to see that the Writers Guild is getting involved in newsrooms now. It's good to see that a lot of these entities are signing, are now signing guild contracts. I think that's an important part of it. But you know, a lot, there's a lot of these really small, um, you know, websites now that, that do this sort of thing. And I get that maybe a lot, a lot of them aren't making a lot of money. But then, you know, the other side of that is you can always create a co-op, right? Make your writers that are there writing for you on staff, make them part owner of the company. So, I mean, there, there are ways around it. And 
I don't think we should come from a place of fear of fighting for better wages whatsoever. So. Oh, of course, of course not. Yeah, no, having that ownership is really key. And I think that's the push. Um, when you start to force companies to say either pay people well or bring them into your business, it creates a much better uh, dichotomy. So mm-hmm. that a good wage as an employee is something you want, but also ownership in a company that you believe in is also something you can strive for. That's right. And I, I'm always a fan of you know moving towards more employee ownership. That's right. So hopefully you guys are able to get Uber and Lyft on board more and um, take care of that because I think really it would be easy for them to give that two is two dollars an hour they could afford that out <laughs> what they charge in their app fees. I mean, come on. Yeah. You know, I remember would... a time when you couldn't even tip the drivers, which I thought was horrendous. Like, if yeah. I want to tip yeah. a driver, why can't I? <laughs> There's a lot of things that giant corporations would be easy to do, but that they don't want to do. Uh, because it's profit. It's yeah. all about the bottom line. I yeah. mean, you know, this whole Prop 22 that's coming out now is such a scam. Uber went ahead. <laughs> they put uh, a proposition on the ballot to, here's the, the most nefarious part. They say it's to repeal AB5. Yeah. Yeah. They're selling it to the voters as. But it's not a repeal of AB5. It's a carve-out exemption, like the doctors got, like the hair salons got, for Uber and Lyft drivers. So AB5 stays on the books and Uber and Lyft get an exemption for their drivers. And it it breaks my heart because I see people out there who aren't drivers, who don't know about the gig economy, who are say independent riders, like, you know, the folks you were talking about, who are upset that AB5 took away their $50 uh, uh, writing gig. And they- I'm not even convinced that's an actual thing. Can I be honest with you? Oh, it's, it's, you know, it's all over. You can go on the internet and you can read about it. Um, no, I, I have, yeah. and I've had these conversations with people I know. I have people I know and I work with that I've argued this point with over and over again because I actually support this proposition, not 22.5, let me be clear on that. And I don't see them really making the, a clear case for what they're saying. And I, 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 you know, I have to be careful because it's people I know, but when they're telling me that they're losing jobs, I'm like, I don't see it. You should fight yeah. for better pay. I'm sorry. I mean, shit. I've been a member of SAG-AFTRA since 1989. I've seen, as a union person, I've seen my wages decrease. And they're still way above par. My guild wages are still way above par for other... I mean, I just don't understand why people don't want to fight for something better. And it bothers me because these folks who are angry and upset see Prop 22 as a way for them to get their jobs back, but it doesn't affect them at all. And it won't bring back their jobs either. That's the thing, you know? I don't, I mean, it, look, obviously it's not an entirely simplistic conversation. We have to talk about a whole host of other things when we talk about these jobs disappearing. But the reality is that the changes that have co- happened like from the 90s until now, not just in um, journalism, broadcast journalism, but writing, et cetera. I mean, I wrote for publications in the 1990s. I was a West Coast correspondent for a major print publication. It's when we had print. I used to make four times what I make now per article. Kid you not. Like, and that was the norm, right? But everything has changed. Everything's, you know, we can talk about the technology that's come into play that's sort of driven a lot of that as well. And the consolidation of media companies. So now you have, um, you know, six giant media companies and then you have a host of smaller media companies all struggling to make a living, right? Yeah. It's complicated, but I still think workers should stand up for decent pay. 
there's no reason even a smaller company cannot give you decent pay. I know this because I've worked with smaller companies that do, you know? It's all a mindset. And if they're telling oh, you they're not giving you your job because of AB5, yeah. I would give them pushback on that. I don't, I don't. And that consolidation, that consolidation hurts all of us because just the other day, Uber announced that they bought Postmates. So I had friends exactly. who stopped doing Uber and Uber Eats and went over to Postmates because Postmates was paying them better. Guess what? Yeah. They're not going to be paying They're you not, better. Yeah. Anymore. You know, that's the other part of the equation is our Department of Justice has not enforced antitrust laws whatsoever for a very long well, I'm time. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. What Department of Justice yeah, are right. you talking about? <laughs> <There. laughs> yeah, exactly. So, I mean, there's lots of things at play here. I don't. I don't think there's an easy way to correct all of it, but I also I also would like to encourage folks not to come from a place of fear when they're making decisions on these things. And I think the only way we take back our democracy, uh, do something about income inequality, do something about the platonomy is by standing up to them. And parts of that are gonna be painful, right? When they were organizing unions back in the 20s, I mean, look at all the losses that they had to take in the short term to get the benefits in the long term, right? That's part. Yep. That's unfortunately part of the pain we go through. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And when you get that splinter effect, then people won't strike in solidarity. They won't push back in solidarity. Um, they feel alone. They feel left out yeah. and they start to hunker down. And that's that's when the companies win. Unfortunately, this is true. Um, so and it's unfortunate that this is the place that we're at. But um, I thought it was interesting that you've been working on that. And it's definitely a conversation that we need to be having within the ranks of the working class, right? What we do about this. Oh matter. yeah. Well, first step in November, I mean, if I don't know a single elected official who uh, shouldn't be taking a stance on um, uh, Prop 22. I mean, I this agree. thing is a, it's a notorious bill and it, it, if it passes, it only shows that these big companies can buy their way out of we already know that they can, though. I mean, look at the history of propositions in the state of California. I can't count the number of times I've seen big money come into the state for or yeah. against any proposition where they prevailed because of it. You know, they. Oh, yeah. The business roundtable is a prime example. I mean, look at the Prop 15, which is the um, reform for Prop 13. They're pushing a line of reasoning on that proposition that is entirely false. Prop right. 13 must be reformed. There's no reason that commercial properties have been having the same exemptions all these years as residential property has. I mean, you have right. Chevron that has a giant refinery in Richmond and they don't pay a fucking dime in property taxes. Like, it's ridiculous. Yeah. This, is, this is why we've had such large definancing of our education system. It's, it's part yep. and parcel to it. A slope argument that doesn't exist. It, it doesn't it's exist, a, yeah. It's so, separate from residential which it should and they're saying if this passes then they're going to come for your homes next and i'm like okay at that point then we'll all say no exactly <laughs> at that point we'll all say no i mean it's ridiculous i mean here's a prime example when i bought my property here in the city of la this is right after i moved out of burbank i uh, moved here the person before me the original homeowner was paying 380 dollars a year in property taxes because of proposition 13 that's it I pay like over 6,000. So right. the other part of that prop, the, the, what Prop 13 has done is it has forwarded the burden to the younger generations in a way that mm -hmm. I don't think is an entirely fair thing either. And I bought my house quite a few years ago. Like if I was buying my house today, it would be even more extreme for the next homeowner, right? right? 
Because yeah. the, the reality is this, folks. We have the state, the government has to get money to run and to function. You want Pedro's, you want the fire department. Well, we don't want the police department. We can defund them. We want, <laughs> <laughs> just throwing that out there. But all these things need to be paid for, right? And this idea that we have a shit ton of government waste is, isn't really true. We are running on a very slim budget and have been for decades. And the, and the reason our school systems have been definanced is because of this. You know, we have, uh, we can get into a conversation of mandatory budget spending and discretionary budget spending, right? And the state budgets have to be balanced at the end of the year. They are not allowed to run a deficit. They're just, that's just not possible. So if you have the, the large item on the discretionary side of the budget is the UC system, the Cal State system, guess what gets cut every damn time? They don't have the money to pay for all the stuff on the mandatory side. We need revenue. So I think Prop 15 is a prime way to get it. I think it's fair and I think it's, hard to, it's high time that these corporations start paying their fair share and that shouldn't scare anybody. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I'll be campaigning for it. Um, so I'll be coming out publicly for Prop 15 and against 22. Yeah. People need and, to pay and attention. And, and I hope people do because, you know, state of California, it's voted blue for presidential elections forever. Even and on so shitty blue candidates. I mean, like, it's just a, I, like if people want to when people make this argument, like, don't vote for green. I'm like, why? It's California. We're elected by the Electoral College. Your presidential vote doesn't matter. Vote for whoever you want to. This isn't Ohio. You know what I'm saying? And for me, that fact will drive people to down ballot propositions and down ballot candidates because people want to get involved, but they know where California is going. So if you can organize folks to show up to the ballot for something other than the, the presidential. The down ballot is so, is so much more important. Exactly. I agree with you on that. So I say that all the time. And, and also the primary elections, also really important. We lose so yep. many great candidates in the primary election because people ignore them and they shouldn't. And this will be the first um, uh, presidential election in California where the ballot order is swapped. So local elections will be listed oh, first. Oh, I love that. I didn't know that. That's great news. Yeah. Good. Force people to look at that stuff, right? Yeah, so yeah. Let's talk about specific Burbank issues because, because Burbank is its own incorporated city. It has its own incorporated municipal laws, right? Separate from the city yeah. of L.A. So yeah, it has one its own of, city charter, its own police force, its right. own fire department, its own school district. Exactly. So specifically, I want to talk about first rent control. City of Burbank does not, never has had any rent control policy, which is crazy, right? But before we get into that, we need to talk about Costa Hawkins, which is a state level bill, because that supersedes anything any local municipality does. So Costa Hawkins was the bill that was passed, I believe it was 1995, 1994, I can't remember now. But it basically took away municip local municipalities' ability to have rent control laws, right? Boom, gone. One of the things that they did to get that passed was to grandfather certain properties in that were pre-built existing. And, but that sort of depends on what part of California you're in. Um, in some areas, it's 1968 and older. In other areas, like I think, right. I think you guys are looking at 1995 as your cutoff. But I want to point out a problem that came out of that that nobody saw, but maybe they should have seen. Because our our uh, state government is so bought and paid for by real estate development, what happened was unintended consequences, right? What happened was is the developers went and bought all of these old buildings, they tore them down, rebuilt apartments on top of it, and voila, no rent control. And it happened all over the city. 
So one of the areas that didn't happen was Santa Monica. And the only reason, this is just me, my opinion on this, is because of the building ordinance laws are so much tougher in Santa Monica than they are in the city of LA, right? You can't just tear down a fourplex and put a 20, uh, a unit apartment building. Right. It's against a building code, right? So I think that's why a lot of the, the stock of rent control apartments still uh, were maintained there in that area. But other parts, downtown LA, other parts, Valley, so many other areas has not been the case. So there's a scarcity in affordable housing. There isn't a scarcity in housing, there's a scarcity in affordable housing. And I think those are two different metrics. Anyway, I fast forward, I just wanted to get uh, a little bit of the history here for the audience so they know what we're talking about. So at the beginning or the end of last year, uh, Governor Newsom signed in a, a statewide rent control bill, right? So now these, now the rent's gonna be capped at 5% plus interest. So I'm gonna say that that's give or take seven and a half to 8% increase a year, yeah. right? But the, again, yeah. the problem here, is that everybody's already overpaying in their rents because they've been allowed to just bubble up for so many decades now, right? So even with an 8% cap, you can't afford anything on the market. I mean, if you're making minimum wage, $15 an hour, and the average rent in downtown LA for a studio, not even a one bedroom, is $2,400, do the math, folks. It's not possible. So I don't know that this really fixes the problem. Meanwhile, we have all kinds of vacancies in, in uh, expensive high-rise lofts, but they don't care to rent them out, right? They don't need the money because a lot of these uh, buildings are owned by hedge fund managers or they're owned by REITs, they're uh, real estate investment trusts, et cetera. So they're wealthy people, they don't need the rent. So locally, you guys are working on a Burbank loft that's gonna be on the ballot as well for rent control and also just cause evictions. Um, what are the differences particularly with the Burbank law versus the state law, and how are you getting around some of the things that are still uh, up against us in Costa Hawkins? Because we have not been able to overturn Costa Hawkins. So last um, uh, election cycle in 2018, uh, Prop 10 was on the ballot in November, and that was, that was a bill, that was a proposition to repeal Costa Hawkins outright. Exactly. Uh, and that failed um, because- Again, uh, big money. Yeah, Blackstone is a huge real estate investment company out of New York, and they own a bunch of property, and they own a lot of single-family homes. Yeah, oh, that's uh, the other thing, uh, Constantine. A lot of the hedge funds also, because they had imploding the rental market wasn't enough, they've been buying up foreclosure homes all over the city of LA. It's crazy. If you look at the deed of title on a lot of these foreclosure purchase houses, it's hedge funds. 12 years ago, when the housing market collapsed and all, all these individual families lost their homes, the people who bought them up at discounted rates were people were real estate investors like Blackstone. Yep. So now they own a bunch of homes all over the country and especially in California. And because of Prop 13, their property taxes are still set at 2008 levels when they bought them. That's right. So yep. another uh, Don't get me started. <laughs> and so Costa Hawkins, when it was passed in 1995, it said you can't put any rent control on, on any new buildings. So anything built before 1995 can be subject to rent control, except in cities that already had rent control. So LA, they passed their rent control in 1968, I believe, and Santa Monica was 1967. Right. So anything right. built after 1968 and 1967, respectively, that can't have rent control either. So it's a very nefarious law. It's a very nefarious law. And the carve-outs, uh, 
the carve-outs that they gave away to get the law passed, and the carve-outs they were giving to progressives like you and I, right? It wasn't to the others, the other team to get people to vote yes on this. They had to like say, well, don't don't panic, don't worry. There's plenty of housing, affordable housing stock out there. All of these. All of these ones built between this before this time will be fine. We're not there's they're still gonna be under rent control laws, so it's not a big worry.